What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. From Memorial Day weekend to Labor Day weekend, if you're an American and you live in this land, that is vacation season. Yes, it is. We try to go to the beach. We try to go on all these trips here and there and anywhere. But I found it interesting that, that did you know how much you actually spend or the actual, how much an average American spends on vacation? It is quite a bit of change. You know, vacation time between uh, Memorial Day and Labor Day is the time that, that we save every penny and dollar we can all year so we can blow as much as we can in one simple week. The average family of four spends almost $5,000 on vacation for a week. It's expensive. Can you imagine? Uh, at minimum, at minimum, you know, or on average, I guess, that is 160 hours or one full month's wage, sometimes more. Maybe if you have a higher paying job, it's less. But just imagine you work all those hours for an entire month or two just to spend it all away in one simple week. And we have fun doing it, don't we? We sure do. When it comes to how much money you spend on vacation, listen, you do you and I'll do me and let every man be fully persuaded. But I don't know if this is something that you do these days, but, but what I'm told is many, many years ago when, when people would go on vacation, whether it's to Myrtle Beach or whether it's to you know, Paris uh, or whether it's to Italy or wherever it might be, you would go into a shop and you would buy what is called a postcard. Do you know what a postcard is? Does anybody here not know what a postcard is? Okay, so for those of you who may not know what a postcard is, it's a, it's a, it's a piece of cardboard paper that you buy that has a picture on the front and on the back of it, you can write a message and you send that to your relative or your friend or whoever it is without an envelope. So when the mailman carries it, they can look in and read your message to your wife or your husband or to your son or daughter or your friend. It is open for the entire world to see. And I, I say all that to say this, is that 2 John is the shortest book in the New Testament. 2 and 3 John are the shortest passages in the entire New Testament. And we are told by scholars that, that if you would have a piece of paper in the ancient world, that this entire letter could fit on like a postcard size of paper. And so this, in a sense, is God's postcard letter to his church. And it's really about one subject, and it's the subject that's written behind me, called truth and love. Would you say that with me? Truth and love. In fact, it's found in verse number three. The last three words in this verse is the theme of this small epistle, and it's truth and love. And that's the title of my sermon today. Would you say that again with me? Truth and love. If you walk away with anything today, this is kind of a, an additional thought I, wanna, I want you to leave with concerning truth and love. Listen carefully, because there's a temptation in our culture today to be so enamored with love that we compromise truth, and to be so enamored by truth that we compromise our love. And so here's the thought I want to share with you. 
Love is vain if it has not truth, and truth is void if it has not love. Did you get that? Love is vain if it has not truth, and truth is void if it has not love. My friends, we are called in this letter, these 13 verses, we are called by God to firmly stand on the truth of the word of God. But while we stand on the firm truths of scripture, we are also called and compelled by Christ to firmly share the love of God. We have to do both. And this small epistle reveals how we can do that. But let me ask you something. Do you love the truth? If you call yourself a Christian today, then you should love the truth. That is what God's word says. I may not fully understand everything in God's word, but I'm gonna stand with God because I, I love him and I love his word. But at the same time, I want to display God's love into this culture that we're living in. Listen, I've experienced God's love in an intimate and personal manner, just like you are here today. If you have, then you know you've experienced it in that intimate way. And today we are called to take that love and share it to everybody. But I'm here to tell you something. Just like John wrote his first epistle, 1 John, those five chapters, here we believe that John is writing the second letter. And, and 3 John, all three of these were written about the same time to the best of our understanding, sometime between 90 and 95 AD. And John is writing the second letter here to a lady revealing how we can know somebody loves the truth. So you might be asking, how do I know I love the truth? Or how do I know brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so loves the truth? Well, today I want to share with you four thoughts and four ways we can know somebody loves the truth from our passage today. In fact, the first thought I want to draw your attention to is from found in verses 1, 2, and 3. And it is this first thought. If you love the truth, then you will possess the truth. If you love the truth, then you will possess the truth. Now, I want you to, to understand this, that as we're reading this second letter by John, you're going to see many of the same themes in this letter as in 1 John. And in fact, all of John's writings, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, a lot of them, these four particular letters have a lot of the same themes. And we know John also wrote the book of Revelation. And all of these things were written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so as John's writing, this is not just a letter he's writing to his friends in Ephesus. This is not just a letter that he might be writing to his spouse or a letter he might be writing to his children. This is a letter that he's writing that is, as he's being moved by God's Spirit. And in these first three verses... The first answer to my question today is this. If you are a person today and you claim to love the truth of God, then you will possess the truth. Notice verse number one. This is unlike any of the other letters in the New Testament. Second John and Third John introduce us to the writer by the term elder. Would you say that with me? Elder. Say it again. Elder. This is a synonymous term for pastor or bishop or presbyter. 
It comes from the Greek word that simply means an overseer of the church. And here it says that John is writing. Now, certainly he was an apostle. He was one who was handpicked by God to follow, handpicked by the Son of God to follow Jesus. He was. He was chosen, if you will. He's one of the, the 12 chosen disciples. And, and here he could say the, the letter written to this lady by the apostle. But he doesn't do that. He's writing this letter with the terminology of elder, noting his pastoral heart at mind and how he's trying to help this lady in her walk with Jesus. Now notice he goes on to say, the elder unto the elect lady. Now I know in many circles within Christianity, the term elect sometime is dodged and we run around it and we hide from it and we never emphasize it. Whereas there are other ministries out there and other groups within Christianity, it's almost like all they ever talk about is this word. But this word is a unique term in the New Testament. This word right here, along with a very similar term, occurs some 40 to 50 times in the New Testament. And many times it's a term describing the church. Now, now, now let me take you back into the Old Testament. Remember Abraham. Abraham was an individual back in the book of Genesis that was chosen by God to do what? To go to another land and to establish a nation of people called the Israelites. And then we know that as he began to have children and as those children began to have children, that, that those people were called the nation of Israel. And God chose the nation of Israel to do and accomplish his will in the Old Testament period. Now, we believe God's not fully finished with Israel, and God has a plan later in time, and that will take place. But then, as Jesus comes on the scene, he is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He comes on the scene, and he goes around, and he handpicks and chooses, or elects, 12 disciples to come and sit underneath him. And so it should not surprise us in the New Testament that God is going to describe his church with a similar terminology that he described Israel, he described Abraham, and he described his disciples. And it's interesting, when you begin to start reading and studying this word that's in the Greek Bible here, you'll realize that it's a terminology that he used to describe his disciples. But it's also a term that he describes his church. And so this word, yes, it means God just as God chose Abraham, God chose Israel, God chose the disciples, God has chosen his church to accomplish his plan of distributing the gospel into the world. But what's interesting here is most of the time in the New Testament, this word elect is used to describe the church generally. But right here and in Romans chapter 16, it describes a man by the name of Rufus and here a lady who is unnamed, called the elect lady. Now, I don't understand everything about this term. I'm still trying to figure it all out in my mind. But what I understand is this, that the word elect is a terminology to encourage us that God has chosen us to be part of his family and to use us to accomplish his will on this earth. I like what one preacher of the past said. He said, on the doorway to salvation, prior to coming inside, you have the term whosoever. And this gospel is a whosoever gospel. We go out into the world, into the highways, into the hedges, into the streets, into every area we can to share how Jesus died on the cross. 
And when somebody comes to faith and they walk through that doorway, surely we know that we made that decision and, and we're responsible for every decision we make. But as we begin to mature, as we turn around and we look back at the day that Jesus saved us, we realize that that term has been changed instead of whosoever it is now chosen. And so this is not a term we need to be afraid of. We don't have to skip over it. This is a term to encourage us that we are responsible for our decisions, but God is also sovereign and his spirit has drew us to salvation. And just as this lady was elected, so are we. And so it says here, the elder unto the elect lady and her children. Now let me pause right here. There are kind of debates among scholars about this interpretation of who this lady was. Some are going to say, maybe if you go and you read some commentaries, you're going to say that, that you're going to see that they're going to say it's a church that he's speaking about here. And then some are going to say that it's a specific lady that John knew in Ephesus, perhaps in his church. And then as you noticed um, later at the very end of the verse 13, it speaks about uh, the elect sister. And so some are going to say that if this is speaking about a church in verse 1, this is a sister church in verse 13. But if it's speaking about a specific woman in verse 1, it's speaking about a specific sister of this woman. And I would kind of land and lean towards this is a letter to a specific woman. Due to the nature and the intimate details here, to me, that's how it best reads. But, but let's move forward. It says, The elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. Now, this word know, it, it is a Greek word called gnosko, and it means that we have experienced this knowledge at an intimate level. And it says this also this word truth. So we know this truth at an intimate level, just like John used this word many times in his first letter. But now verse 2, it says, For the sake, or for the true sake, which dwells in us and shall be with us forever. So John's writing here, and he says, you know this truth. In other words, he's saying you possess this truth. This intimate knowledge that's experienced personally. So that brings me to this point. If you love the truth, then you will possess the truth. Now, surely you can know about the truth. You can read all the facts about the truth, that is, about the truth of God's word and the gospel. But until there comes a time in your life when you actually possess the truth, then you're really not part of God's family, not part of God's truth. If you're here today and you do not possess this amazing truth found in Scripture and in the gospel, today I urge you, come to Christ. What did John say in chapter 3 of the gospel? He said, for God so loved the world. That is the general call, the universal call to all humanity to come to faith. So come. If you don't know Jesus, come to him and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's the one who died on the cross for your sins. That if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Romans 10 says. And believe that God has risen Jesus from the grave. You shall be saved. My friends, that is good news. And that is truth that we can possess intimately. But then, interestingly enough, in verse 3, a lot of times in these New Testament epistles, you'll have grace, you'll have mercy, you'll have peace. But they're not always going to be used at the same time. And here, uniquely in the New Testament, we see John uses all three. And I love what one commentator said. He said this, grace is God's unmerited favor. Mercy is God's withholding deserved punishment. Peace is the restoration of harmony with God that accompanies salvation. And here we see grace, mercy, peace from God and from his son, Jesus. And notice here it says, in truth 
and love. As we think about these two words, truth and love, to maintain a healthy and growing community, the church must exhibit fidelity to the truth that knows no compromise. And they must love one another in a way that knows no boundaries. That was a quote from Danny Aiken at Southeastern Theological Seminary. If you love the truth, my friends, you will possess the truth. But, but hear me well today. Love is vain if it has not truth. And truth is void if it has not love. Would you look at verse 4, 5, and 6? The second thought I want to share with you is this. How do we know somebody loves the truth? Secondly, if you love the truth, not just you will possess the truth, but, but if you love the truth, then you will practice the truth. If you love the truth, you'll practice the truth. John, here, we know that verses 1 and 3 is the introduction, the greeting. And then verses 12 and 13 is his, his, his ending, his way of saying goodbye. But verses 4 through 11, this is the body of the letter and the main point of these verses. And he says, I rejoiced greatly that I found of your children walking. This means to living out the truth day to day. In other words, you'll practice the truth. Surely this word walk, if we pull it right out of its context, out of, this, out of these verses, it means walk like I'm walking right now, I'm walking on this stage. And that's what the word means. But when you put it into the context here, it means more than just walking with two legs. It means walking with your lifestyle. It means living each and every day in the truth of God. And listen, that's what we need now more than ever. Yes, I believe we need to get on our megaphones, if you will, and shout the message of salvation far and wide. But also, we need to shout the message far and wide with the way in which we live. Our lifestyles need to be glorifying to God. And then it says, he says here that he's rejoicing that, that she has people in her family that are walking in the truth. And I'm here to tell you something. It is just so joyful to know that when people grow out of their family's households or they, they go into adulthood or the young people that grew up here in this church and they're still living for Jesus, that is encouraging. But then he goes on to say, as we have received a commandment from God the Father. And it says, now he says this, I beg you, or as the kingdom says, I beseech you, lady. Not as I'm writing a new commandment to you, but that's that what we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Isn't that a theme in John's letters? But actually... It's a theme of the whole Bible. Love God, love people. That's what he's called us to do. Love God first and foremost, and then love our neighbors as ourselves. And here he says, here, of course, it says from the beginning, and I, I'm of the persuasion that this is referring back to the time when they heard Jesus, when John heard Jesus say those words and teach those words. And then John took that message and began to teach these believers at Ephesus. And then this lady could have been one receiving that message from John himself. And then it says, and this is love, verse six, that we walk, remember, we live it out each and every day after his commandments. This is the commandment that as you heard from the beginning, that you walk in it. In other words, display God's love, obey God's word. Display God's love, obey God's word. That is how we can practice the truth. I don't know about you, but 
But I've lived long enough to realize that, that people can say, yeah, I believe that Bible right there, but I never read it. And I don't follow it. It just collects dust on my bookshelf and, and I'm just going to live any way I show, uh, uh, ever so please. Well, may I ask you something? Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm the only one thinking this. But if somebody claims they believe this Bible right here, but they don't study it and read it and live it out, surely we all miss a day of reading scripture here and there. We all fumble and, and stumble and, and sin and mess up. Surely that happens. <coughs> Excuse me. But if somebody continually does not obey his word, does not love people, to me they're displaying they don't know the God of love and the God of truth. So if you love the truth, you will practice the truth. But John goes on to write in verses 7 through 11 a third thought here. How do we know if somebody loves the truth? Well, before I share with you thirdly, listen to this. Love is vain if it has not truth. And truth is void if it has not love. Thirdly, if you love the truth, then you will protect the truth. If you love the truth, you will protect the truth. Yes, you'll possess it. Yes, you'll practice it. But you will also protect it. This gives the idea of guarding the truth. And notice here, John says there are many truth bearers that are in the world. Is that what he says? There are many people that are proclaiming the good news of Jesus in sincerity and truth. No, he says deceivers. Would you say that with me? Deceivers. Say it again. Deceivers. This means an imposter. Imagine for Halloween, I dressed up as Batman. And I said, I am the Batman that you see in the movies. I am the actor Batman. Obviously, I would be lying. I'd be deceiving you. Even though I look like him, I may not be as tall and as buff, but, but I could sure try. Uh, <laughs> but I would be, in a sense, a deceiver and an imposter. And interestingly enough, in the new age of the church, the first millennium or the first century of the church, we see that these deceivers were coming in. And it is very possible that the same people John's writing about in this second letter is the same people that he was writing about in the first letter. These people who did not believe that Jesus was fully anointed and Messiah and was not fully man and fully God all at once. But he says, there are all these imposters coming around in our world today and they confess. That means they acknowledge with their lips that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh. He says, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, I know that we already talked about this in 1 John, but if there's somebody that you know that does not believe Jesus is God's anointed Messiah and that he was God incarnate in the flesh and he died and lived a sinless life, then they are a deceiver and they have the spirit of Antichrist. The word Antichrist, it means somebody who opposes. So if you oppose this message, you oppose God. If you oppose this book, you oppose the God who gave us this book. If you oppose the message of the cross, you oppose the God who created this cosmos and this universe. Here, verse number eight, the Bible says, look to yourselves that you or that we lose not those things which we have wrought. In other words, don't lose those things that we've labored after, that we work for in the sake of the gospel, that we might have our full reward. Here, this verse, verse eight, Gives the idea that we're going to stand before God as believers at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. And God is going to be very liberal with us. He's going to give us as many rewards as he wants to give us. Based upon how we conducted our life as a Christian. 
But then verse 9, verse 9, it says, whoever transgresses. This word transgress, it means to violate. I, Brian Wayne Ratliff, I have violated God's word. I have transgressed. I have walked into the territory where God had a no trespassing sign, and man, I was trespassing. And I'm guilty. And because I'm guilty, I deserve what the Bible describes as the second death, the lake of fire, hell. I deserve that. But, but the good news is, is Jesus stepped in. When I violated God's commands, Jesus came and lived in a way that he fulfilled and obeyed God's commands when you couldn't do it and I couldn't do it. And all we have to do is put our faith in Jesus. And as a transgressor of God's law, we can now partake from the benefits of our intercessor and mediator, Jesus Christ. It says, whoever transgresses. Now the context here is obviously about doctrinal error. Whoever transgresses and abides. John, remember back in 1 John, he says that if you didn't continue with us, you were never of us to begin with. Remember that? Well, here, I believe it's the same idea here in verse number nine about abiding not in the doctrine of Christ. That is, if somebody doesn't abide or continue and remain and remain steadfast throughout the course of their life, if they, if they come in the scene and say, well, I don't think that Jesus is God anymore, then it's obvious they didn't really know God. If they say Jesus is not the Messiah, he's not the only way to heaven, they didn't really know God. And here, I believe John is saying that when somebody does that, they've transgressed and violated God's law. So hear me out. Just as somebody violates God's law through murder and through theft and through lying, somebody also violates God's law by adopting heretical teaching. They do. And I say that with all sincerity. When we were in, in Nevada on this mission trip, we were out canvassing and doing some door knocking, going door to door and just trying to invite people to, uh, to the vacation Bible school and the community, um, uh, community revival meeting we were doing at this Christian school there. And um, I think Chris was my partner that day. And, and we, we hit this one door right early in the morning. It was like 930 in the morning. So God bless them. We probably woke them up. But anyways, we, we got there and, and this lady, she was part of what, what's called the Kingdom Hall. And I asked her to get her translation of the Bible because they used the New World Translation. And I began to just ask her, well, I, well how about this verse, this verse, this? And I, I went through like 10 verses or so, give or take. And she had an explanation for everything. But those explanations, my friend, were unfortunately wrong. And I say that respectfully. And somebody who would adopt the teachings of Christ from the Kingdom Hall or from the Mormon religion, would be adopting heretical teachings about Jesus Christ and would be revealing to me if they do not know the true Christ. And so here the Bible says that he that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. And so today we are called to protect this truth. Now surely I don't need to, to, to take a, 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 get a lock and a chain and just cover this book right here with, the, with a lock and a chain and, and just guard it like this and put it in a safe. That's not what it means here. It means we are good to guard it in our minds and go and pro proclaim it. And when, when people that don't believe the truth come in our way, we are not to be persuaded by their deceit. But in verse number 10 and 11, we see that 
There's a lot of discussion amongst people these days about these verses. Can I have a conversation with a Mormon in my living room? Can I have a conversation with, with a Muslim in my living room? Can I have a conversation with a representative from the Kingdom Hall in my living room? Can I give them a cup of coffee as we sit down and have a conversation? All these questions that we have. And I'm going to give you the answer. Verse 10, it says, If there come any unto you and brings not this doctrine or this teaching about Christ, it says not to receive them into your house, nor bid them Godspeed. So what does that mean? Does that mean we can't even have a conversation with them on our front porch or allow them to set foot in our room or, or our living room or our house or kitchen? I personally don't think that's what that means. Let me explain something to you. In the, in the first century, life was a whole lot different than it is today. You got to keep in mind, they didn't have Holiday Inn Express. They didn't have Best Western. They didn't have Sleep Inn. They didn't have the Marriott. They didn't have Hampton Inn. They didn't have these nice hotels that we have today. They didn't have Airbnb. I know, yeah, you probably don't stay in a regular hotel anymore. You go Airbnb and BRBO, I got you. Or maybe you go camping. We didn't have, they didn't have all these luxurious places to stay like we have today. And so what they would have to do is they would have to be housed, a traveling evangelist or a traveling missionary would be housed in a member of the church's home. And so what John, I believe, is referring to here in verse 10 and 11 is allowing one of these false teachers to come into your house for you to aid them in a place to stay for a few days or a week or two and then give them financially in supporting their causes. This does not mean that you can't allow them to come into your house and have a theological conversation with them and tell them about Jesus. This means you, you should not allow them to stay as if they are a real teacher and preacher of the gospel and missionary. And we are not to give to the work. Now, I know there's a lot of televangelists out there, and before you ever give to a ministry, you better check out that ministry first. Because if you don't check it out, you might be giving to a ministry that doesn't fully teach the Word of God. We're called to protect this truth. And notice verse 11. It says, we are to not to bid them Godspeed. And when we bid them Godspeed, when we host them in our houses and we feed them meals and we take care of their provisional needs and we give to them financially, the Bible says we are, we are a partaker of their message of heresy. So what are these truths that we should stand for? Well, I believe we should stand firmly on the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. In other words, that the Bible is the Word of God. And what God's Word says is final in matters of faith, life, and how we practice the Christian life. I believe that, it, that we should stand upon the triunity of God. How God is, is one God made up of three personages, made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what we call the Trinity, the Godhead. He is the creator, sustainer. He is the redeemer of all things in this world. That man has fallen. All of us are fallen and we're in desperate need of God's grace. That when Jesus came, he was born of a virgin. That he was fully divine and fully man. That he did many miracles in this earth. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He gave ears to those who could not hear. He did all these amazing things. He walked on water. He gave thousands of people fish from just a little lunchbox. And he lived a sinless life. I believe we should stand on the substitutionary death of Christ for our sins. In other words, Jesus, when he died, he was our substitute there. And we don't have to die that death. He died that death for us. And he rose victoriously from the grave. We stand on those doctrines. We stand on the fact that Jesus ascended up to glory. 
And he is right now interceding on our behalf and he has given us or given us the promise that the Holy Spirit would come and reside in us. And then I believe that we should stand firmly on the literal future return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now that's not an exhaustive list, but those are what we call the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. And so I guess I can be called a fundamentalist. That is, I believe in the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And we are called to guard those doctrines, protect that truth, and proclaim that truth into this world. One commentator said this. He said, what he is saying in our passage here is that we are not to provide support or aid like a place to stay or money to anyone who is spreading false teaching and error. If you love the truth, you will protect the truth. You will practice the truth. You will possess the truth. Love is vain, my brothers, if it has not truth. Love is void, my sisters, if it has not love. But let me share with you finally from verses 12 and 13. If you love the truth, then you'll praise the truth. If you love the truth, you will praise, or if you will, you rejoice in the truth. Notice in verse number 12, John is writing to this lady, and he says, I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about, but I'm not going to write it in this letter. I'm going to come to you and speak face to face or mouth to mouth, right in person, that our joy, say that word with me, joy, say it again, joy, one more time, please, joy might be full. Today, I want us to understand this, that when we fully embrace the truth of God, it should make us worship God in a greater fashion. The greater our understanding of God equals the greater of our worship to God. And here we see that as we are digging into Scripture, we are going to praise Him for His truth. And then He has this word here to this elect sister. He sends greeting and ends this word with amen. Are you praising the truth? Are you worshiping God who gave us the truth? Listen, hey, hey, we praise athletes at the football games. We praise musicians at all the concerts. We do. I mean, we give them adoration, if you will. We give them a level of worship. We, we give people that sense of worship. And I'm here to tell you something, that God has given us the truth. And we are to worship him for the truth. I came across um, something about Pompeii about the truth, and when I read it, it shook me to the core. Listen to these words. Excavations at the ancient city of Pompeii have revealed many historical insights and some stirring examples of faithfulness. When Mount Vesuvius erupted and destroyed the city, many people were buried in the ruins. Some were found in cellars as if they had gone there for safety. Some were found in upper rooms of buildings, probably for the same reason. One Roman sentinel was found standing at the city gate where he had been placed by the captain, with his hand still grasping his weapon. There, while the earth shook beneath him, 
There while the floods of ashes and, and cinders covered him, he had stood at his post. There, after a thousand years, his faithfulness was revealed. That is how faithful we are to be to Jesus and his truth. We are not to be deceived by those who would sway us from the truth. We are to stand firm, strong, and resolute when Jesus comes or when we go to meet him. We're to be found at our post with our weapons in our hands, believing the truth and living the truth. This book is about truth and love. And the temptation I've had is to love everybody to the extreme where I compromise God's truth. Then at the same time, the other temptation I have is to stand so firmly on the truth that I don't show any love to anybody. And we have to have both, my friends, because love is vain if it has not truth, and truth is void if it has not love. This is love and truth and truth and love. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.